All right, I want to welcome everyone this morning to our continuing study of the book of Genesis. If you have your Bibles today, please turn to Genesis chapter 42. Genesis 42. And we're going to go to the Lord now in prayer. We're going to ask God today to bless the preaching of His Word. Let's pray. Lord, we love to gather in Your name, Lord Jesus. Lord, we love this time, Lord. We love this church, God. This is where our souls long to be, Lord. And we thank You, God, for Your faithfulness, Lord. God, thank You for Your faithfulness to Your people. God, that You encourage souls as we gather around Your Gospel, around Your glory, Lord. And You carve out these moments, God, where everything else is set aside and we worship You, Lord Jesus, in Your majestic glory. And this is what we were made for, Lord. To know You, to love You, to serve You, and to worship You, God. Lord, we want to ask You to manifest Your glory today, Your power today in salvation. God, we thank You for saving souls all across this room. Lord, we know that this is Your free work. Jesus, You told us, God, that the wind blows where it wishes. You will not be manipulated, Lord, and You will not be domesticated. You blow where You wish, Lord. And so is everyone who is born of the Spirit. God, we want to ask you today to be the God of salvation. God, we want to ask God that your wind would blow today, Lord. That you would be pleased from heaven, God. That you would take this gospel that's been planted all across this room in ears. And that you would cause it by the power of the Spirit. Even today, Lord, to be planted in the hearts of men and women. God, we long for sinners to know You, Lord Jesus. For Your enemies to stand in Your presence in fullness of joy to experience Your great salvation. God, we ask You to exalt Your name today. As we gather around Your Word, God, we pray that You would encourage us, Lord. That the unfolding of Your Word would give light today. And yet, You would bring understanding today to the simple. Lord, we ask for Your blessing upon Your Word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Alright, for several weeks we have been studying through the life of Joseph as a local church. And just very briefly, I want to remind us, get us caught up, that Joseph has been exalted to a position of power in Egypt to prepare the nation of Egypt for seven years of famine. We're told in Genesis chapter 41 that this famine is so severe that it's going to affect not only the land of Egypt, but all the surrounding lands as well. Genesis 41 verse 57 tells us that all the earth will come to Joseph to buy grain. All the earth will come to Joseph to buy grain. And so what we've seen in Genesis is that Joseph has been exalted as a savior figure, a deliverer to the nations. And this is actually a partial fulfillment to that Abrahamic promise all the way back in Genesis 12 verse 3 that there's going to be an offspring of Abraham 
that's going to bring blessing to all the nations of the earth. Joseph is a partial and an initial fulfillment to that promise that the nations come to this deliverer for life as they come to Joseph to buy bread. By the time this famine comes, Joseph is 37 years old. So let's get this chronology straight. He's 17 when he's sold into slavery. He spends 13 years in suffering. And then he spends seven years overseeing the years of plenty in Egypt. He's 37 years old by the time that this famine settles in. And he hadn't seen his brothers for 20 years since he was 17 years old. Chapter 42 begins as the effects of this famine begin to settle in to the land of Canaan. And we're going to read the word of God together. Genesis 42, beginning in verse 1. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there, that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Verse 6, Now Joseph was the governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them. But he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from, he said. And they said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And so these first nine verses begin to set the scene, set the stage for the next three chapters that are to come. And, and one of the things I want to note just right off the bat in this story is we have another example in Joseph's life of the sovereignty of God. I want you to notice just, just in passing the, the instrument that God uses to bring the chosen family into Egypt to stand before Joseph is a famine. It's a natural disaster. And this is, this is the sovereignty of God that he uses a famine to accomplish his purpose. Later in the Old Testament, Psalm 105, commenting back on this event, Psalm 105, verse 16 and 17, tells us that God summoned this famine. Okay, devil didn't do this, God did this. God summoned a famine on the land and he broke all the supply of bread. Why? Because he had sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold As a slave. So God uses the famine to bring this chosen family to visit Egypt for bread. And as they get there, they stand before the governor of the land. Now they don't know it's Joseph, but it's Joseph. They stand before the governor of the land to buy food. 
And I just want you to note the authority that Joseph has in this passage. Okay, The sovereignty of God. And then I want you to notice the authority of Joseph. He's raised to a position of authority and power in Egypt. He's the one in the midst of a famine that's deciding who gets bread and who doesn't get bread. And that means that Joseph, in this particular place and time, has the authority of life and death over who lives and who dies because he decides who gets bread and who doesn't. He's a man of tremendous power in this story. In fact, in the previous chapter, Genesis 41 You remember um, verse 43 tells us that there's this announcement that goes everywhere before Joseph in Egypt. That he rides the chariot and there's an an announcement that goes forth that says, bow the knee. Imagine that being, you know, what precedes you everywhere that you go. This is how much authority and power Joseph has been given. Bow the knee, the power of life and death. Again... Psalm 105, commenting back on this story, tells us, verse 22, that Joseph has the authority to bind princes at his pleasure. Okay, So it didn't matter if you were a royal figure in Egypt or anywhere else. You stand before Joseph, and Joseph has the authority to bind princes at his pleasure. So we have the sovereignty of God bringing the brothers back into Egypt, down into Egypt, to stand before this, this figure of tremendous authority, the governor of the land of Egypt. We're told uh, in verse 6 that the brothers come, verse 6, and they bow themselves before him with their faces to the ground. They bow before this powerful figure in Egypt. And they're unaware of two things. Okay? They're unaware that this figure that they're bowing for is Joseph, and Ryan you know, mentioned a few of these things last week. They, they don't know it's Joseph because Joseph speaks like an Egyptian and he looks like an Egyptian. Okay? His identity is hidden from them. They don't know it's him. But they also don't know that they just fulfilled those dreams that Joseph had about his brothers back in G- Genesis chapter 37. You remember that's what started this whole thing. As the Lord God gave Joseph these dreams that he was going to be exalted to a position of power and authority over his brothers. That dream came to Joseph with those agricultural imagery that, that, of the sheaths bowing down to Joseph. And all of a sudden what we have here is the fulfillment of the word of God. Even verse 9, Joseph himself realizes That the word of God, these dreams have been fulfilled. Verse 9 says, Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed about his brothers. Now I want you to remember, those things have been sitting dormant on the shelf of, of Joseph's life for 20 years. And then all of a sudden, 20 years later, the word of God comes breaking into fulfillment. And his brothers are bowing down before him, prostrate to the ground. And all of a sudden, Joseph is face to face with those who were instrumental with sending him into 13 years of deep, deep darkness and suffering. And the tension in this passage begins to build, right? You have the guilty ones, and they're standing before the authoritative one 
who has the power of life and death, and yet these guilty ones have sinned against this authoritative one. All these emotions are rushing into the mind and the heart of Joseph, and the passage begins to zone in on what's about to happen. What's Joseph going to do? He stand, he's, his brothers are, are finally before him. He's got them right where he wants them. With all the authority of Egypt behind him, how will this man of tremendous power respond? And we'll keep reading in Genesis 42, beginning halfway through verse 9. This is Joseph's response to his brothers. And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said to him, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. And he said to them, No, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they said, We are your servants. We are twelve brothers, the son of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with his father, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, It is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Verse 16. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined that your words may be tested whether there is truth in you. Or else by the life of Pharaoh surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody. For three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, do this and you will live for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households and bring your youngest brother to me. So your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so, and so I want us to see Joseph's response before his guilty brothers in this position of tremendous authority. Joseph's response is to bring charges against his brother. And the repetition in this passage helps us to understand the themes that we're dealing with. Notice four times in this chapter, Joseph repetitively charges his brothers with being spies. Note these, verse 9, he says, you are spies. Verse 12, he tells them, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. Verse 14, he says, it is as I said, you are spies. Verse 16, he says, surely you are spies. Now I want you to imagine the position of those brothers. Okay, that you stand before the one who has the power of life and death. And all of a sudden, he begins to light into you with repetitive charges of espionage and treason. You are spies. It is as I said, surely you are spies. And it's not hard to imagine that these words strike terror into the heart of these brothers. And this is what Joseph is intending to do at this point in this story. He wants to strike terror in their hearts. 
Verse 11, we see the brothers respond. Um, Joseph's charge is, you are spies. And the, and the brothers respond in verse 11. And they say, no, we're honest men. We're not spies. We're honest men. We're not treacherous men. We're honest men. Now, I want you to imagine how those words felt landing on the ears of Joseph. Because that's not how Joseph remembered these men as, at all as, as honest men. In fact, 20 years ago, the last time he, he laid eyes on these men, they were ruthless men. They were treacherous men. They cast him in the bottom of the pit. He begged for his life. And his own brothers sold him and trafficked him into slavery in Egypt and lied to his father and told him that Joseph was dead. And so imagine Joseph hearing that response. No, we're honest men. And yet these are the same men who threw him in the pit and lied to his father that he was dead. And then Joseph responds again. Okay, And this gets... Gets us into the theme, not only of Genesis 42, but the theme of this next section, Genesis 42 through 45. Joseph responds to their, um, their position that we are honest men. And what we see is that Joseph, as the governor over the land of Egypt, the man of tremendous authority, he's determined to test his brothers. And we see this repeated four separate times in this, in this chapter, verse 15 says, you shall be tested. You shall be tested. He's not taking their profession at face value. He is determined to lean into their profession. Are they really honest men? And Joseph says, you're going to be tested. Verse 15, verse 16, he says it again, that your words may be tested whether there is truth in you. Joseph's going to test his brothers. Verse 19, he says, if you are honest men, if you are honest men, and, and, and the purpose there is these tests that Joseph are, is about to give his brothers, it's going to reveal the true state of their character. And he says it one final time in verse 20. He says, so your words will be verified and you will not die. And so the ruler of Egypt has determined to test these brothers, okay? And this is actually a masterful, spirit-wrought plan that's been placed into the heart of Joseph. This plan to test his brothers is from the Holy Spirit, and it's going to unfold in the book of Genesis with mind-blowing detail, okay? And I want to explain what's coming uh, really quickly. What's going to unfold in the next several chapters is that Joseph is going to, basically he's going to intentionally recreate the, a situation that's parallel to when his brothers betrayed him back in chapter 37. And I'll explain this really quickly. They, his charge against his brothers is you're a spy. You are spies. Well, remember what Joseph did back in 30, chapter 37. He was sent by his father to know the state of his brothers and they hated him for bringing a bad report back to his father. They hated his report and so he charges them with being spies. Similar thing happens in this story. They bind Joseph in 37 and throw him in a pit and what does Joseph do? As soon as his brothers stand before him in chapter 42, he binds them and he throws them into jail for three days. 
So we have we have these parallels. This situation is being recreated. And most importantly, most important piece of this is that Joseph demands that Benjamin be brought to Egypt. Joseph demands that Benjamin be brought to Egypt. In verse 20, Joseph says, bring your youngest brother to me. Bring your youngest brother to me. Now, that's what the next several chapters are about. Okay? Uh, this is the final, this is Joseph's end game to get Benjamin to Egypt. Now, why Benjamin? Benjamin is the beloved son of the father Jacob. And that ought to remind us that was Joseph's place. That was Joseph's place at one point in his life. He was Jacob's favored son. And after Joseph has supposedly died, Benjamin has now taken his place as the favored son of his father, Jacob. And what we're going to see in this test of the brothers, in chapter 47, the beloved son is going to be separated from the father and he's going to be brought down into the land of Egypt. That's chapter 43. Then in chapter 44, the beloved son is going to be bound and he's going to be tossed in jail, an Egyptian pit. And this is Joseph's master plan. He's recreating this whole scenario to put his brothers in almost the exact same situation that they were in in Genesis 37. And the question is, will they walk away again from the bound favored son of Jacob. They're going to see Benjamin bound and placed in a pit. And the question is, this test is meant to reveal, are these brothers changed? Have they been transformed? Are they really honest men? Have they been changed by the grace of God? Are they still, still the same wicked, ruthless men that left Joseph to rot in the pit back in Genesis 37. And so this story, is, as it unfolds, it's going to reveal that the Lord is transforming these sons of Israel. And especially uh, Judah. Um, he's going to have a unique place in this family. So that's what's coming at us in this, in this narrative over the next several weeks. Is we're going to trace the transformation of these guilty, wicked men in this story. And what we're going to see in the rest of chapter 42 is their initial response to Joseph's test. Their immediate response to Joseph's test. Let's pick it up again in verse 21 and we'll finish out this chapter. Then they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, and that we saw the distress of his soul When he begged us and we did not listen, that is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them for for there was an interpreter between them. And then he turned away from them and he wept. And he returned to them and he spoke to them. And he took Simeon from them and he bound him before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack. 
and to give them provisions for the journey. And this was done for them. Verse 26, Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. And he said to his brothers, My money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. And at this their hearts failed them. And they turned trembling to one another, saying, What is this that God has done to us? And when they came to Jacob their father in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man, the Lord of the land, spoke roughly to us and took us to be spies of the land. But when we said to him, We are honest men, we have never been spies. We are twelve brothers, sons of our father. One is no more, and the youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, By this I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me, and take grain for the famine of your households, and go your way. Bring your youngest brother to me, then I shall know that you are not spies, but honest men. And I will deliver your brother to you, and you shall trade in the land. Verse 35, as they emptied their sack, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob, their father, said to them, you have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more. And Simeon is no more. And now you would take Benjamin. All this has come upon me. And then Reuben said to his father, Kill my two sons. If I do not bring back to you, if I do not bring him back to you, put him in my hands and I will bring him back to you. But he said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you will bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. So we have the initial response of the brothers to the test of Joseph. Now I want us to be reminded of how these brothers have been presented to us in the book of Genesis thus far. And they've been presented to us as wicked men. Not holy men, but wicked men. So I want to give you a few of these reminders. This has been carefully crafted by the author of Genesis, Moses. As soon as chapter 34, we have the story of two of these brothers committing genocide in the city of Shechem. You remember that story? At the, at the rape of Dinah, these men trick all the males of Shechem and they go into the whole city. Not just the ones who are guilty. They put the whole city to the sword. Commit genocide in Shechem. They're actually going to be judged for this at the end of Genesis when the blessing is given to the sons of Israel. So this is Simeon and Levi. Those who slaughtered the Shechemites. Genesis chapter 34. Then we come to Genesis 35. And we have the, the firstborn Reuben goes into his father's wife, commits incest and sexual immorality in Genesis chapter 35. So we don't have this holy bunch 
we have these wicked men, okay? Uh, Reuben is the firstborn, and he has disqualified himself from the blessing of the firstborn. And we'll see that as the blessing is passed down to Jacob's sons later in Genesis 49. And we even get a hint of this uh, in, in this passage at the very end of Genesis 42. Reuben, the firstborn, approaches his father and he offers his two sons as surety for Benjamin. That if Benjamin isn't safe, if I don't get him safe back to you, he says, kill my two sons. And his father rejects Reuben's uh, uh, plan. He, he set, Reuben has been set aside in the story for his wickedness. And we're going to see more of that as we see uh, Judah step in to take his place later in Genesis chapter 45. So we have the sin of Simeon and Levi in Genesis 34. We have the sin of Reuben in Genesis 35. Genesis 38, remember that story? We have the sin of Judah and Tamar. That Judah goes into his daughter, who he thinks is a daughter-in-law, who he thinks is a prostitute. So we have all this evidence building in the book of Genesis, not of this, these holy men, but of these wicked men. And that's before we even get to this reminder in Genesis 37 that ten of these brothers are guilty of selling Joseph into slavery in Egypt. And so we have a problem here in this story that this is the chosen family. That these wicked men have been chosen by God. They've been set apart by the sovereign purposes of God to carry forward these covenant promises in Genesis. As this transitions from family to the nation of Israel. This is whom God has determined to use. And even as we read all the way to the end of the Bible, uh, Revelation chapter 21 tells us that the names of these 12 sons are carved forever into the gates of the new Jerusalem. So the question is, there's a trans, there's a, the tension is there's a transition that has to be made in this story. These wicked men need to be transformed by the grace of God. And that's exactly what we're going to see begin to happen in this story. Their initial response to Joseph's test shows us the beginning of their transformation in the book of Genesis. Now, I think this principle holds true. Uh, this is, you know, kind of a, a, a maxim that all spiritual transformation, all spiritual transformation begins with an awakened conscience to personal sin. And that's what these brothers experience. That's exactly what they begin to confess in verse 21. They confess that they are guilty. They are guilty ones. They're not making excuses for what they've done. They begin to confess that they are in fact guilty before God. They begin to own their guilt before God. Their conscience is being awakened to these wicked things that they've done to their brother Joseph. Verse 21, they confess to be guilty. We read later, back in the land of Canaan, when they're recounting this story to their father. In verse 35, we're told that they're greatly afraid. They're guilty and they're greatly afraid. And that's the initial response of these brothers as they are confronted with the test of Joseph. They're guilty of sin 
and they're afraid of punishment from God. They've been struck with guilt and fear. And what I want to do is I want to point out several things in this passage that we would be convinced that we would see that guilt and fear are, in fact, the exact right, appropriate response to the sinfulness of our sin. And so I want to point, point out just several things in this story of the effects of these, these, wicked, these ten brothers, the effects of their wicked sin. And once we see these effects, we're gonna, it's going to be more and more confirmed that, yep, guilt and fear is the appropriate response once we see sin as it truly is. And so the first is I want you to notice that in this, uh, in this story, their sin causes great pain to the one they sinned against. And I want you to try to visualize this. We're told uh, right after verse 21, they begin to discuss what they're guilty of among, their, among the brothers. And, and they're speaking what they think is a different language than the governor of the land, the lord of the land. And so they begin to, to recount what happened. And they say things like this in verse 21. We're guilty concerning our brother. We saw the distress of his soul and he begged us and we would not listen to him. 20 years ago. 20 years ago, they remember their 17-year-old little brother that they chunked into a hole in the ground. And they begin to recount to one another the wickedness of their sin that Joseph began to cry out and scream out for help and for mercy. And they ignored it. They ignored it. Their consciences were seared and now their consciences were stung. And we're told, beginning in verse uh, 23, that Joseph hears them. He hears them talking about this wicked sin. Hears them talking about them throwing him in the pit. And all of a sudden, this 20-year-old memory just races to the front of Joseph's mind and his heart. 20-year-old memory. And now it dominates his thoughts. It's everything that he can think about. In the last chapter of Genesis, Joseph thought that he had forgot about this stuff. He named one of his children Manasseh. God has caused me to forget my affliction and my father's house. He had enjoyed seven years of plenty. Thought this stuff was behind him. And then all of a sudden, this one sin, 20 years old, races to the front of his mind. And this is the pain that sin does to those whom we sin against. Things that are 20 years old brings a grown man to his knees weeping over sin. A 20-year-old man who is the Lord of the land of Egypt is weeping over something that happened 20 years ago. And this is the pain and the turmoil that our sin unleashes on those whom we sin against. And so guilt and fear are appropriate responses once we begin to understand the sinfulness of our sin. Our sin's not a harmless thing, okay? It's not, oops, I made a mistake. It is wickedness before God and it causes great pain to those whom we sin against, image bearers of God. And so we see Joseph weeping over the sins of 
these brothers. This is one of the effects of sin. The second that we see in this passage is we see the sin of of these brothers. It causes grief in the heart of their father. It causes grief in the heart of their father. So they're coming back to Canaan and they're recounting this story to their father. And in verse 36, we're told that, that they bereaved their father, that their father is grieved greatly over their sin and, and what they have done. And even in verse 38, we're told that he fears that he will go down into Sheol in sorrow. In sorrow. So you have this father who loves his sons. And their sin has caused great grief and sorrow in his heart. Jacob, Jacob expresses his bereavement. He's, he says he's lost two sons already because of their sin. He lost Joseph. Now he lost Simeon. And he fears that he's going to lose Benjamin if he allows them to return back to Egypt. Look at verse 36. Jacob, their father, said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more and Simeon is no more. And now you would take Benjamin. And so this is this is grief in the heart of the father. And this is what sin does. This is why we should feel guilty about our sin, because it hurts other people and it causes grief in the heart of those who love us. Many parents all across the room, you understand this. When your children, when they sin against God, when they drift away from the Lord, what happens? Your life, your heart is bound up with the child and you grieve that they are turning away from the Lord God that you love. And this is what sin does. It causes grief in the heart of those who love us. And I want you to think about this, that Jacob in this story is just a little mini picture of the heart of God the Father. The heart of God the Father in this story. And I wonder if you've ever thought about this. That in the Bible we're told not only that our sin makes God angry. And we're told that many different times. That God has righteous and burning wrath for our sins. Directly aimed at us in our sins. But do you also know that Scripture tells us that our sin grieves God? It causes sorrow in the heart of our God. This is exactly what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. Followers of Christ are urged and commanded not to grieve the Holy Spirit of God. That our sin grieves God. Does that tug at you this morning? Our sin grieves God. Yes, he's angry at our sin. But have you ever thought about that this morning, that your sin breaks the heart of your God? It breaks the heart of your God. And it's always been this way. It's always been this way. This has always been the Lord's response to human sin. We're told that right before the flood, in Genesis chapter 6, that the Lord sees That the wickedness of man is great in the earth. He sees violence filling the earth. He sees wickedness and treachery and sin filling the earth. He says this in Genesis chapter 6 verse 5. That every intention of the thought of man's heart was only 
evil continually. And then the Bible says this about your God. It says the Lord regretted that he made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. It grieved the heart of God. He was about to unleash wrath and punishment and judgment and it made him angry, this sin, and we know that. But do you know that sin grieves the heart of God? It grieved him to his heart. It struck the heart of God with sorrow. And so we see that guilt and fear are appropriate responses once we begin to understand the true nature of our sin because our sin causes grief and sorrow in the heart of those who love us. And then the last thing I want to point out here is that sin, the effects of sin in this passage, is we're shown that sin rightly incurs the righteous judgment of God. So what does sin do? What are the effects of sin? It hurts people. It grieves people. And we see that in this passage. But then we see that sin incurs this righteous judgment from God. Rightly incurs the righteous judgment of God. And so what do these brothers do? How do they respond to this test? Not only do they acknowledge their guilt... And they started doing that in verse 21. We're guilty. Not only did they acknowledge their guilt, they began to interpret the events that were happening to them, that Egyptian ruler's harshness towards them. They began to interpret these events as retribution from the hand of God himself. And this is what Reuben says in verse 22, that they are are beginning to experience... A reckoning for Joseph's blood. It was coming upon them. That language of reckoning is the language of payment. With that word, they're putting themselves in the courtroom of God. And they're interpreting everything that's happening to them. God is now paying us back for these wicked things that we have done. And this is how they interpret these mind games that Joseph plays on his brothers where he puts their money back into the sack and they open their sack and all of a sudden the money's there. Look at verse 28. He said to his brothers, my money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. And at this their hearts failed them. And they turned trembling to one another saying, what is this? That God has done to us. Do you see that? Things are unfolding and they're trembling because they see someone standing behind this Egyptian governor, the Lord of the land. And they see these events as retribution from the hand of God. God is paying them back for what they have done. And so what we see as their response to this test unfolds that they go way past interpreting their sin as hurt in, in a merely horizontal way as hurting Joseph and grieving their father. And they go into this vertical category. They begin to process th- their sin in this vertical category that they stand guilty before the righteous judge of all the earth. 
And Scripture calls this godly sorrow. Not only that you're sorry for the wrong that you've done and the hurt that you've done horizontally to other people, but that you begin to see yourself guilty before God and standing deserving of His righteous wrath that He's promised to pour out on sinners. And this is their response. This is their response. They stand guilty before God deserving His punishment. And so what's happening in this story in Genesis 42 is these brothers are falling under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. This is what's happening in the story. They're being convicted of their sins. Okay, This is preparatory to the transforming work of grace that God is going to do in this family. But right now, the Holy Spirit has stuck His sword into their conscience. He's convicting them of their sin. And we're told in Scripture that this conviction, this is the special work of the third person of the Trinity. Jesus tells us this in John 16, verse 18. Listen to what Jesus says about the Spirit of God. Jesus says, when He comes, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And so what that means in chapter 42 is that there's an unseen character here. There's an unseen character that the Spirit of God is at work in the hearts of these brothers and He's bringing this painful yet necessary work of conviction of sin. It's painful. It's painful because it's basically the Holy Spirit taking the sword of His Word, the sword of His law, and piercing our hearts with our own guilt for breaching the law of God. This is painful stuff when we began to really square off and face just how wicked we truly are. In fact, it's so painful that this description is used in Acts chapter 2. Those who receive the Holy Spirit's conviction in Acts chapter 2 are said to be those who are cut or sliced or pierced to the heart. Those who are cut to the heart with conviction of sin. So think about that imagery. That the Spirit of the living God is able to take the Word of God and use it like a sword to pierce human hearts with their own guilt, with their own wickedness. And it's painful because it feels like you're being stabbed by the Spirit of Jesus. And this is what's happening to these brothers. So one of the big takeaways for us is to observe this pattern. Okay, this is a pattern that we can trace all throughout Scripture. Is that salvation from sin is preceded by conviction of sin. Okay, I'll say that again. Salvation from sin is preceded by conviction of sin. And so this is a necessary work that the Spirit of God does in order that we could see the glory of Jesus Christ as He cuts us to the heart. And this is the kind of stuff that we have a tendency to run away from because we don't understand just how necessary and just how preparatory this conviction of sin truly is. Without Genesis 42, you don't get Genesis 44 and 45, this transformation 
of these wicked men. This is the very beginning of the grace of God in their life. Salvation from sin begins with the conviction of sin. Now, I want to be careful here, and I want to explain this carefully. The Bible never, ever tells us that a person has to have some certain intensity in the measure of their conviction prior to trusting in Jesus Christ. Okay, You need to be really careful of this. That we have these weird metrics that we impose on everybody. Everybody's got to come in the exact same way. Unless you're laying in the floor, rolling you know, in sorrow over the conviction of your sin. You can't be saved. We need to be really careful okay, of taking these highly emotional experiences and making them prerequisites for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And so another way to say this, we got to be careful here, okay? We don't send lost people to go get a conviction experience. That's not what we send lost people to do, okay? Uh, okay, you're not, you don't feel bad enough about what you've done, now go feel worse. That is not the gospel call. You can't find that nowhere in Holy Scripture. We send the lost to come to Jesus Christ, to put your trust in Jesus Christ as we announce that gospel call, the Spirit of God is behind the scenes. What's He doing? He's cutting human hearts. He's preparing human hearts to put their trust in Jesus Christ. This is especially important as a local church as we begin to think about the salvation of the children in our midst. Okay, Especially important that we understand this. You need conviction of sin, but you need to be really careful... Okay, that you don't have this weird idea of how, you know, I came into the kingdom of God is the same way that you came into the kingdom of God. I was a wicked man. I was a wicked man, full of the world. I didn't come into the kingdom of God till I was full of the world at 20 years old, stacked up, you know, a, a lot, a lot of sin, feasting at the table of the world. Is that what you want for your children? Is that what you want for your children? Now, that might be the path that God takes them down to break them of their own self-righteousness. Is that, is that the path that everybody has to go down for salvation through faith in Christ? You need to understand this, okay? The gospel does not call you to feel worse about your sin. The gospel calls you to put your trust in Jesus Christ. Put your trust in Christ. Are you aware that you are a sinner? Are you under a, a fear of the judgment of God that you see yourself in this place, that you know you're a sinner, you know you're under God's righteous judgment, then the Word of God calls you to put your trust in Jesus Christ. Not to wait till you feel worse about it, but to fly to Jesus Christ by faith. The old hymn says it this way, Foul to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. So this conviction of sin is a necessary preparatory role, but we need to be really careful that we're not imposing these metrics of intensity on every human being. Okay? So with those appropriate qualifiers, we'll come back to this theme that we see in this passage. It's necessary. Is preparatory for the grace of God in your life that you would be cut. 
That you would be cut by the Spirit of God, the Spirit of the living God. That you would have some measure of feeling like you got stabbed in the heart because you're a wicked man or woman under the righteous wrath of holy God. And we understand this, okay? The person who's never been cut by the Spirit of Jesus, the person who thinks they're fine, they don't have any reason to put their trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior, right? You've never been cut. You don't even know you're in trouble. You don't, you, don't, you don't have any idea of how bad things truly are. That you stand under the righteous wrath of the Holy God. You don't experience that until you're cut by the sword of the Spirit of God. This is why salvation begins with conviction. Salvation begins with Conviction in John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. Y'all know this book, most famous book outside the Bible in Christian history. Okay, that journey that 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 Christian takes. You know how it starts? Very first page. He's got the burden of sin on his back. He's got this burden on his back that's crushing him, and he's got this great desire to rid himself of this burden. This is how it always starts. That you're struck, that you're cut, that you have a burden, that you realize you're in trouble. This is grace from God. These are wounds of grace from the Holy Spirit. And that's exactly what these brothers received. Okay, That conviction that they received was a gracious gift from God. Do you think about your conviction like that? That it's a gracious gift from God. Something's wrong with you. Something's malfunctioning. If you continue in sin and rebellion against God and you feel nothing, you feel nothing. It's like a little child putting their hand on the stove and watching their hand sear and burn and and having no recall of that's dangerous. That's painful. That's not going to end well. Conviction of sin is a gift. It's a gracious gift from God that he would get in our ears and in our hearts and he would begin to blast the trumpet danger danger wrath ahead turn away turn to Christ it's a gracious gift gracious gift from God one of my favorite favorite testimonies are just favorite truths about God to remember and I was reminded of this a couple of years ago a young woman in our church, a member of our church, described her conversion. And she described the day of her conversion as the worst day and the best day of her life. And she began to tell the story of a long drive back to Starkville, Mississippi. And for the first time in her life, the Spirit of God began to cut her. He began to pierce her heart that she knew Theoretically, she was a sinner. But all of a sudden, she began to feel it. Dirty before God. Dirty and guilty before God. And deserving God's judgment. And she said it was terrible. It was the worst feeling ever to be exposed by the light of Jesus Christ. And yet in that very same moment, she said it was the best day of my life. That in that backdrop of the guilt and the dirt and the nastiness of my sin, I saw the Lord Jesus. And I knew I needed Christ. And I put my trust in Christ. And Christ has taken away my sin. 
best day, worst day, best day of my life. She was cut so that she could be saved by the Spirit of God. This is what Hosea tells us about the Lord wounding us. That He wounds us in order to heal us. Listen to this. Hosea chapter 6, verse 1. He says, Come and let us return to the Lord. For He has torn us that He may heal us. He has struck us down. And He will bind us up. This is beautiful grace. These rhythms of salvation. That the reason He sticks the sword in so deeply into our hearts to produce conviction is not to condemn us, but to heal us, to bind us up through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, I want to call those, as we close this morning, I want to call those in our midst who have been awakened to your sin. That this is you. That you begin to see your sin. The sinfulness of your sin. That you have been a wicked man. That you have been a wicked woman. That you are under the righteous wrath of God. I want to call you this morning to embrace your conviction. That you wouldn't run from it today. That you wouldn't try to numb it. That you wouldn't ignore it. But that you would embrace it. As a gift from the God of grace. That you would allow the Holy Spirit to wound your conscience. Today, so that he could bond you up. And we know this many times. We know this. You can harden your heart to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. You can harden your heart. You can feel some of the things that we're talking about and walk away. And so I would encourage you to embrace this conviction. Don't harden your heart, don't explain away your sin. If there's anything that this generation, we're the victim generation, the therapy generation, that's what we are. And if there's anything that we need to be reminded of about the Spirit's conviction, don't explain it away. Don't explain your sin away, that you're a victim instead of a criminal. That bad things have happened to you instead of you're the criminal. You have done wicked deeds before God. Don't explain it away. Don't blame your sin on other people. Don't blame your sin on difficult circumstances in your life. Allow the sword of the Spirit of God to pierce you. Embrace it as a gift from your Father who is in heaven. And if truth be told, all across this room, you're worse than you ever thought you would be. You can only see a fraction of the wickedness that's in your heart. You're worse than you ever thought you were. And there's enough sin and evil in every heart in this room to drown the world three times over in wrath for sin. This is, this is what the Bible portrays us as, as wicked ones, hostile to God, haters of God, doing evil deeds. And so if you're awakened this morning to the sinfulness of your sin, please understand, you don't know the half of it. Okay, You don't know the half of it. It's way worse than you think it is. Embrace it. Allow yourself to be cut by this conviction of the Spirit of God. And it prepares you for the grace of Jesus Christ. It prepares you for the grace of God. 
The Puritans used to use this phrase that where sin is bitter, Christ is sweet. Where sin is bitter, Jesus is sweet. And you see that. You see the person who has been stabbed in the heart by the Holy Spirit. And they're offered this free, amazing salvation that the Son of God, the one who should crush them, came to save them, even dying for their sins. Offering them free salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. It's the best news that they've ever heard. The conviction of sin prepares you for the grace of God. And if the bad news is worse than you ever thought, then the gospel is better than you ever imagined. You only understand the half of it, of the glory and the grace and the love of God in Jesus Christ. One of the things that we're told that Jesus has done for sinners is that he bears their shame. He bears their shame. And when you stare into those wicked things that you have done, the appropriate response to the sinfulness of sin is shame. It's shame before God for what you've done. Jesus bore the shame of sinners on the cross. He took the shame. He took the sin and He took the shame that goes with the sin. And the Gospel reminder is this. Romans 10 Verse 11, the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. No more shame for sin for all those who put their trust in Christ. And so what this means is that this gift of conviction that the spirit of God gives is a gracious gift that's meant to bring you to the feet of of the crucified and resurrected Son of God. It's meant to bring you to the feet of Jesus, that you would see yourself as the sinner and Jesus only as the Savior of sinners, that it would bring you humble to His feet. And the only response is not to wait and feel worse about your sin. That's the devil's game. Wait till later. Put your trust in Christ tomorrow. That's Satan's game. That's satanic strategy. The gospel call is to put your trust in Jesus and to come to Christ. He is the only one that can put away the guilt and the fear and the shame of sin. Simple, childlike faith in the Son of God. Everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. Let's pray. Lord, we gather around your word again today. God, we ask that Jesus would be exalted in our hearts and our minds. God, we pray that you would use the unfolding, the simple unfolding of your word to give light. God, we ask that hearts would be encouraged. Lord, I ask if anything was spoken that's not helpful, God, that you would cancel it today. And if anything was spoken that's from you, God, that you would plant it in our hearts and cause it to bear fruit. Lord, we love you. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.